Matthew 22, 34 through 40. Hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together. One of them, an expert in the law, tested him with this question. Teacher, what is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. Uh, Good morning, Park Hill. I love you guys. Uh, You know, let's take a little time this morning and pray for um, uh, the Jewish synagogue shooting that happened. Um, My wife and I live, like, literally on the campus of SDSU. Like, we are right there, and there's a synagogue there, and I'm developing friendships with a lot of the beautiful Jewish families that walk through our neighborhood, and uh, man, we just need to be praying for, for, for our world. Let's pray. Father, uh, as we get into the scriptures this morning, love God, love neighbor, we are in a setting where yes, yesterday there was humans shooting each other out of hatred. Is happening all across our globe. And the church exists as a space and a people who present to the world what the world could be and should be in God's will. And so, God, we're asking that you just meet with us today as we listen to you, as we seek to love each other, as we seek to love our neighbor. We pray for our Jewish brothers and sisters who um, are facing such huge suffering today for the families that lost loved ones. And so, Father, may you encourage the saints and may you bring your shalom upon the city of San Diego the way that things ought to be. Peace, love, joy, gentleness, kindness, shalom. We just entrust this to you and ask God that you would work miracles through us. In Jesus' name, all of God's people said, Amen. Amen. Well, for those of you that are new to Park Hill, uh, my name is Dan. That was my wife, Alexis, reading for us this morning. And, uh, you know, it's an absolute pleasure to be here teaching the Bible. I just absolutely love it. And this year, my family and I, we are alongside what is now a growing community of people on Sunday nights, are preparing to launch the first official church plant out of Park Hill Church, a church called Neighbors Church. Um, For those of you that are interested in that, we are right now, I actually was just on the campus of SDSU. We're trying to possibly find space on the campus of SDSU to plant the initial gathering. Super stoked about that. Please be praying for that. And you guys can come join us tonight as well if you'd like to, if you're interested in jumping on with this, Park Hill is all about sending people to plant churches. I'm gonna be talking about that today. And so we are, we are the first official church plant from Park Hill Church to be sent out. And as we go out as Neighbors Church, we're gonna be praying that we can plant within the first two to three years of Neighbors Church. And then we're praying that those churches that get planted plant more churches. And the big question around that is why? Why all of this effort to multiply? And the reason is God's primary means of multiplying the kingdom of God in cities, in neighborhoods, and in the world is through church planting. And so from the very beginning, when Evan and I met and we all began dreaming about this, Park Hill was actually praying to 
to plant pregnant, which is kind of a super weird image, but we ended up being able to do that. We planted with a church plant already in place and moving forward. Now, we didn't know what the timelines were going to be on on how this was going to roll out. And so back in uh, October of 2018, Matt and Evan approached me and they said, look, here's how things are looking. We could do this. What do you think about planting out of Park? Because we had talked about different timelines. What do you think about planting out of Park Hill this year? Uh, to which I hit the panic button. Ah! <laughs> and we ended up spending probably about three months in some really intensive, prayerful process with Matt, with Evan, with our wives, with our families. Tons of conversation, tons of fasting, tons of seeking God's presence and will. And ultimately discerned that it was God's timing and it is time for Park Hill to send out their first church plant. And so it's very, very exciting. In that process, I began asking myself a lot of different questions. I've been involved in the church planting world for about 12 years now. And I began to ask myself, okay, here we go. We're going to plant another church. What do we want to do different this time? What do we want this next church plant to look like? How how does God want this next church plant to look? What, What is he doing in all of this? And so one morning, I was just kind of musing over these questions, and my thoughts went something like this. As I was laying there in bed, I was like, well, okay. With this plant, uh, I would love it if my neighbors, like Ronnie and Enza and Lincoln and his family, and Rand, the local Jewish synagogue administrator, and Orion, the local homeless guy in the park next door to us, I would love it like if my neighbors would be part of this. Like, if this next church plant could be my neighbor's church, I'd be stoked. And all of a sudden, I was like, whoa, neighbor's church, that's it. That's how this all began to kind of roll out. So that brings us to our text today, love God, love neighbor. And this little section of Matthew, it captures not only the goals of neighbor's church and Park Hill Church, but this little segment captures the purposes of the church globally and throughout history because these verses hold within them all the will of God for all humans and ultimately these verses hold the opportunity for the healing of our world. Now one of our core values as a family of churches, which is what we're gonna be calling ourselves, is simplicity. So we have this like stripped down production on Sunday mornings. We have the clear and very uncomplicated call to all of you to practice the way of Jesus by gathering here on Sundays and then to multiply that out into our city through our communities. And that simplicity is really put forward here by Jesus. He was such a brilliant teacher. What Jesus does is he takes all of the mass of the complexity of the entirety of the Bible and he distills it down into these two simple commands. Love God, love your neighbor. Tom Wright says that if we truly lived in obedience to these two simple commands for even just a single day, then God's kingdom would come on earth as it is in heaven in full. And really, guys, that's the point of this morning. Jesus seems to think that through his kingdom work, these commandments are somehow now within our reach. So let's go ahead and dig into this. First verse. Hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together. One of them, an expert in the law, tested him with this question. So I want to stop and make kind of a 
a broader point just out of this idea of testing and questioning. Because in this section of Matthew previously and for a couple more weeks, Jesus is being challenged over and over and over by the Sadducees, by the Pharisees, by these different groups of opponents. He's being tested, we're told, with these questions. So they've, they've challenged him on how he thinks about politics, how he thinks about taxes and relating to Caesar. Last week, he, he was challenged on the nature of marriage and relationships and eternity and the resurrection. So what these opponents were trying to do was stump him and embarrass him publicly. They wanted to discredit him in the eyes of the crowds. And what I love here is Jesus's humility and his humble confidence. With every successive test, you don't see Jesus squirming. He doesn't get all defensive. He doesn't get emotional and overreactive. He just stands his ground and answers the challenges that are brought his way. And this is a very important lesson for Park Hill. It's a very important lesson for Neighbors Church. It's a very important lesson for all the church in our generation. And this is why. Jesus actually serves as a beautiful model for how we, the church, can interact with and should respond to both genuine questions and disingenuous questions how we respond to the challenges that culture is bringing. Every generation of the church faces these challenges from the outside and from the inside. Now, externally, our generation, this generation of the church, we exist in a culture that actually prides itself on cynicism. We're surrounded by a society that is bent on deconstructing the traditional values and the truth models upon which we've built our civil society. And because of this intense deconstruction and cynicism and challenges and questions continually, because of this, some Christians, and even entire Christian communities, they've in essence gone into retreat. So rather than pressing into the challenges, and answering the questions that are brought forward to the church with humility and graciousness and thoughtfulness. Some have actually retreated from the academic world. Some have retreated from the hard sciences because of the questions that are brought about and the opposition brought to the Bible. Some have retreated from social and civil and political leadership because of this opposition brought against the way of Jesus. Now, of course, I recognize and I commend there are those who, like Jesus, they humbly stand in the places of greatest questioning. They're actually pursuing political position despite the opposition. They're actually in the classroom teaching the hard sciences as Bible-believing Christians. They're actually pressing into the intellectual world. And it's these faithful folks, in essence, they are the frontiersmen of the church, so to speak. They're living in the wilds, on the edge, where all those conflicting worldviews exist. And Park Hill, those called to neighbors, this is where Jesus would have the church to exist. His spirit is at work in the hotbeds, on the frontiers, on the edges, where our worldview comes into contact with other worldviews. Now, internally, we have done ourselves an even greater disservice as the church when it comes to tests, challenges, and questions. Maybe this morning you're here 
and you're in a season of deep suffering, your circumstances are confusing and painful. And so you find rising from that confusion a whole list of questions complemented by a whole ton of doubt. Guys, every maturing Christian, we will all go through extended seasons of doubt and questioning and answering and deconstructing and reconstructing. But what I have found is that tragically, many within the modern evangelical church have no place for the process of a Christian deconstructing, reconstructing, doubting, questioning, and being confused. And so rather than providing space and allowing souls to wrestle through those challenges and the doubters and the questioners to to be able to find that safe place where they can ask those questions, instead they're simply told, you just got to have more faith, you need to pray more, read your Bible more, believe better, and move on with your life. You're making me very uncomfortable with all of your doubt and your questions. Even worse, in some cases... There's a toxic avoidance of questions altogether. I have met so many Christians who grew up in a church culture where their questions were and they were actually condemned for their questions. It was like the question itself was like considered a dangerous sin that mustn't be uttered as if the question would just deconstruct all the truth of God and Christianity would fall apart. And this ought not to be. Dear church, if we proclaim faith in an infinitely wise, all-knowing, all-powerful God who became fully human in Jesus, then this God can withstand the questions and challenges of puny humans, no matter their level of education or expertise. Jesus was not intimidated. He listened, he received, and he answered. Guys, if we say that we trust in the God who made everything and the God who says he's working all things for our good, but our questions or maybe sometimes the answers that he gives to our questions that we don't like, if those things cause us to abandon him, it's very possible that our faith was actually more in a God of our own making, a God who never tells us no, A God who runs the universe in the way that we think the universe should be run. Our doubts and our questions, more often than not, are actually deconstructing the false genie-in-a-bottle God that we've made up in our own minds. Our Our questions, they redirect our souls to a God who is bigger and wiser and more loving than any of us could ever imagine. Our questions are leading us to the God that we... Of course, we could never fully comprehend the glory of this infinite being, but we can trust him completely. And the point is, our faith, because of Jesus, is actually bolstered by questions, bolstered by this critical way of thinking. As followers of Jesus, we should welcome hard questions. We are called to exist as a community of wisdom. Because our worldview, it is sourced in God himself, our worldview goes with the grain of the universe. It's the way things ought to be. 
Our worldview, because it's sourced in God, it correlates to actual reality. And so we believe that Jesus and his ways are the answers to all of the world's pain. Now, I can already hear your challenges to me. I have them as well. Dan, dude, what if I don't have the answers? You're waxing eloquent about answering questions that I may not have the answers to. That is a legitimate, fear-producing concern that all of us have. None of us want to be caught in that awkward moment of, uh, uh, I don't know. <laughs> but that's actually what apprenticeship to Jesus is all about. Staying humble. Recognizing that there are going to be moments where, of course, we don't have the answer. We may never have the answer. But that doesn't mean that we aren't always learning and growing and thinking and maturing. And so questions and challenges to our faith, they actually strengthen our discipleship to Jesus. Questions create intimacy with God because they drive us to him in search of answers through prayer and study and through our community. And as we are with Jesus, we become like Jesus and we are enabled to do what Jesus did. There's one of my favorite stories in the book of Acts. Luke tells us there's these two uneducated peasant fishermen, Peter and John. And they are literally turning their city upside down as they are answering the challenges of the elites. But it wasn't because of their philosophical precision, precision or their apologetic prowess. Luke tells us that these guys were turning their city upside down, turning their college campuses upside down because they were intimate with Jesus. Acts chapter 4. The members of the council were amazed when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, for they could see that they were ordinary men with no special training in the scriptures, in logic, in philosophy. These weren't your smart, booky eggheads. But they also recognized them as men who had been with Jesus. Jesus wants to give us answers. Jesus wants us to answer the questions of our neighbors. Does that require more reading, more meditation, more prayer, more community? Yes. And those are all the basic components of apprenticing ourselves to this Jesus. Guys, I'm going to wrap this up and we'll move on with our text. In this deeply cynical age where humans are drowning in the deconstruction of the truths and the values upon which society has been built, we, the church, we are to be a life raft to be taking in the refugees of the moral and the intellectual revolutions that are storming all around us. Now, of course, many are not going to like the answers that we supply. Many are going to literally be aghast at our responses to the challenges that they bring to our faith. And many will come with questions who have no real desire for an answer. Like the Pharisees, there will be a disingenuousness to the questions that are brought. Their only goal will be to discredit Jesus. But let's watch what Jesus does here. Let's go back to our passage and the question that was brought to Jesus in this, in this, in this moment. Verse 36. Teacher, which is the greatest command in the law? Okay, let me unpack this for us just a little bit. The Bible, Old Testament, 39 books, over 600,000 words, 
multitudes of stories, multitudes of poems, commands, promises, prophetic warnings. And these guys approach Jesus. We're told in particular, a scholar, a PhD in the Bible, approaches Jesus and says, all right, smart guy, what's the most important thing in all of this? Let's the pages thumb through his fingers, unrolls the scroll, it rolls out. The teachers of Jesus' day, this scribe, this lawyer, this PhD, they had counted approximately 613 laws in Torah, Torah, Genesis through Deuteronomy, 613 specific laws. Included in that was the Big Ten, the Ten Commandments, which most of us are familiar with. Don't murder, don't have any other gods, no adultery, that kind of stuff. Then what they did is they had this ongoing debate And they divided these 613 laws into what they called weightier and lighter commandments, weightier and lighter categories of law. And it wasn't that any of God's commands for the Orthodox Jew, none of them were so light that they could be ignored, but there was an ongoing acknowledgement that commands like don't murder were considered heavier commands than weird commands like don't boil a baby goat in its mother's milk. So from these rabbinic debates, there arose this ongoing discussion about which singular command was the most weighty of them all. And there were all sorts of famous kind of celebrity rabbis that were putting forth their little set of answers to this primary question. And then Jesus answers this way, verses 37 to 39. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. He he was saying the second is same in weightiness. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. And so Jesus doesn't respond with a singular verse. He responds with two verses, a twofold answer. The first command that he highlights and proclaims, this is the greatest and the weightiest, is taken from Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. It's called the great Shema, after the way that the the passage starts. The great Shema, Deuteronomy 6, 4, it was actually prayed twice daily. Jesus would have grown up praying this verse twice daily. It is that way to this day with the Orthodox Jew. And the command in 6, 4 of Deuteronomy actually starts this way. Hear, O Israel. Listen, O Israel. That word hear or listen is the Hebrew word Shema, the great Shema. Shema, O Israel, listen, hear. But this command for the ancient Hebrew to listen, to hear, it was much more than just hearing words with our eardrums. Shema also meant pay attention, Israel, focus, Israel, and actually Shema meant respond with behavior and action, Israel. The great Shema commanded a whole heart, whole body listening to and obeying of God with all of our strength. With all of our strength. What in the world does that mean? It's an interesting word there at the end of that. To love God with all of your strength. It is to love him with, I love this. This is Tim Mackey. Love him with all of your muchness. Love him with all of your muchness. It means to love God with everything you have, devoting every possibility, every opportunity, and capacity to honor God. So our society wants to say, it's all about love. Love is love. Love wins. But how do we 
define love? How do we define love? Culturally, and this is a bit of an overstatement or a little bit reductionistic, I recognize that, but culturally, love equals emotional experiences of affection and desire that overwhelm us. That's love. Played out between humans, love is an experience of getting something from someone else, whether that's I get sexual gratification from you, I get a sense of acceptance from you, I get a sense of fun from you, I get a sense of social status from you. It is getting something from another that fills us with this sense of euphoria and delight. Love in our culture takes. For Jesus, highlighting Deuteronomy 6.4, love meant listening to what God says is right, true, and brings flourishing, and then actively obeying that. And for Jesus, that active obedience to God could only manifest in how we treat one another, in human relationships with each other. And so the great Shema, it established the vertical relationship between humans and God, but Jesus knew that that vertical love had to play out in horizontal love between humans, so he adds Leviticus 19.18, and he says, this is equally weighty, this is equally great. Verse 39, a second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. We can't love our neighbor without God love, but we can't love God fully without neighbor love. The two are inseparable from one another. And so loving God means I inconvenience myself to bring flourishing to my fellow human, especially the ones considered worthless. In the biblical definition, Love is an act of sacrificial giving for the well-being of the other. Practically speaking, this means loving God is more than euphoric feelings and adoration and delight in him. Loving God is completely obeying what he says about sex, marriage, singleness, money, generosity, drunkenness, modesty, what we watch, what we wear, how we work, how we treat our bodies, what we believe. And the list goes on and on and on. 613 commands, the entirety of the Bible. Why these lists of obedience to God? Because these prohibitions and these commands, these were all things that would either break or build human relationships as God wants them to be. And so when Jesus says the greatest command is twofold, that all humans love God and love neighbor, he's saying the most important teaching in all of the Bible is that humans obey God with everything they have by seeking the highest good of the other at cost to ourselves. Now, so much has been said on that little comment, love neighbor as you love yourself. I I looked and I listened far and wide, and I was hard-pressed to find a preacher or a commentator who didn't feel it necessary to qualify that statement of loving yourself, love others as you love yourself. They would usually say something along the lines like this. You know, we all have plenty of love for ourselves. That's actually the problem. So Jesus definitely isn't saying love yourself more. (laughs) And in some sense, in some degree, that's true. But I want to address something. We live in this sick irony, in this cultural moment. It's so twisted, 
what is happening to us societally. With the rise of the selfie, there has been a parallel rise of what I would describe as self-hatred. Our social media platforms, they have fueled an unconscious narcissism. And that unconscious narcissism has actually amplified our body image issues. It's exacerbated our comparison and our envy. It's increased our striving to keep up with the proverbial Joneses or Smiths or whoever may be next to you. Our unconscious narcissism has actually increased those feelings that we are less than and that we are constantly left out. Our unchecked over-focus on ourselves compared to others has produced a culture drowning in depression, anxiety, and self-loathing. Loved ones, we hate ourselves because we've lost a sense of how deeply we are loved by God right now. False loves create false selves that pursue in futility what only your creator can give to you. When we listen to and we obey what the Instagram influencers and airbrushed magazine covers command us to look like, act like, and live like, we are basing our value and worth on fading things like wealth and status and looks and position in society, and our souls weren't designed to live this way. And the pendulum swings. Just three or four days ago, The Atlantic came out with an article talking about the new Instagram influencers who refuse to stand by the pink wall with their avocado toast, their perfectly tilted head. The new Instagram influencers of Gen Z are, hey, we want it raw. We want it real. So it's now staged bedhead. <laughs> it's still staged. The pendulum just swings from one way to the other as we try to influence one another. Without listening to what God says about us and obeying him out of his love for us, we will never know who we truly are. That is God's children accepted and adored and made beautiful through faith in Jesus. Now, Rowan Williams, sweet, quick little read in his book called Being Disciples, he writes, being with the master, that's Jesus, is recognizing that who you are is finally going to be determined by your relationship with him. If other relationships with Instagram, with airbrushed magazine covers, if other relationships seek to define you in a way that distorts this basic relationship, you lose something vital for your own well-being and that of all around you too. You lose the possibility of a love more than you could have planned or realized for yourself. Love God less and you love everyone and everything less. And so Jesus says, Look to God and then love neighbor. As you love yourself, as you are loved in God and by God. In another gospel, Jesus was asked, hey Jesus, who is my neighbor? How do I get out of this? And in essence, Jesus just answered straightforwardly, whoever you are next to right now is your neighbor. Whoever you live next to is literally your neighbor. That's who Jesus was referring to. There's nothing mysterious in the Greek language here. Your neighbor is the one next to you. 
Your neighbor is the one, wherever you are, who is closest to you. And the heart of God for human relationships is this, that we would see strangers as neighbors and neighbors as the family of God. Loving your neighbor as yourself means never reducing a person to a category or a label. As we love God, we see God's image reflected in the eyes of every person on earth. So our friend next to us right now is our neighbor that we love as ourselves. Our fellow student in class tomorrow is to be loved as we love ourselves. The homeless guy we pass on the way to work is to be loved as we love ourselves. The enemy that sought our harm is to be loved as we love ourselves. And it's as the church loves God, we increasingly inconvenience ourselves to give to our black and our white and our Mexican and our Asian and our Muslim and our Buddhist and our Hindu, Democrat, Republican, rich, poor, homeless, educated, uneducated, gay, straight, male, female, gender fluid, moral, rebellious, religious, pagan, neighbor. We love our neighbor as we are loved by God. And so Jesus, with his twofold love God, love neighbor answer, he creates this unique community of people who are living into the whole of God's will vertically towards him and horizontally towards others. And so the way of Jesus is not just obedience to sets of commands while we neglect our fellow human. And the way of Jesus is not just social justice for the sake of the other human, while disobeying clear points of obedience to God's will revealed in Scripture. Jesus' way is a middle way between those two poles. Jesus' way is actually an all-encompassing way. And as we wrap this up this morning and come to the tables, Jesus closes his answer to this test by saying, all the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. All 613 commands, all the stories, all the prophetic words, Jesus says they're all captured. They're all, brought, they're all set forward right here in these two simple commands. And in thinking about this, I realized Jesus distills the complexity of the Bible down to one word, intimacy. The whole of the book is about intimacy. From the beginning, what God has wanted and what God is always laboring to bring into his world is deep, intimate relationship between himself and humans and deep, intimate relationship between humans and humans. So every prohibition in the Old Testament, from the big ones, like have no other God and make no idols, to the super weird, obscure ones like don't eat bats and lobster. <laughs> as strange as it sounds, those commands, those prohibitions, they were, for God's people, they were specific guardrails to keep them in, in not only deep, intimate relationship with Yahweh, with their father, but they were guardrails that prohibited them from breaking relationship with the humans around them. They were guardrails that drew the humans around them into relationship with God and with themselves. Those commands and prohibitions have morphed in the new covenant. The love one another's of the New Testament are the same. Every story, as you guys are reading through the Bible, like I, like I know you do every morning, you get up and you have your quiet time and nobody ever misses that. But when, you, when, when you're there, 
and you're in those weird stories that make no sense, those stories are this, they're case studies in what happens when humans lose relationship with God and each other. Some of those stories are case studies on what happens when humans are restored to intimate relationship with God and each other. So every psalm, every poem, every prophetic warning and lament has at its epicenter God's heart for unfettered relationship with humans and loving relationship between each other. The dual commands to love God and love neighbor, when lived into today, this afternoon, they result in our lives and this world becoming what God intends. And Jesus believed that through his kingdom mission, God would enable us to worship and love him and to love one another in the exact way that the prophets promised. And this all stemmed from renewed hearts and renewed lives. And that renewal happens through the cross and the resurrection and the power of the Holy Spirit in us and upon us. John, another apostle of Jesus, would say to his disciples, we love because he first loved us. It's this profound truth that God first loved us. The more we meditate on that and live into that, that truth moves our focus away from the Instagram influencers and those that we compare ourselves to and those that we are envious of. When we recognize that we are loved in the midst of all that, it moves our focus from ourselves to our Father and outward to others. God so loved us that he became intimately one with us. He so longs for that intimate relationship with you that he came and he absorbed all the things that all of us have done to break our relationship with him and with others. Jesus came, and in our place, he loved his friends and his enemies and you. Not only did he love us as he loves himself, but he loved beyond himself. He laid down his own life in our place to bring us back to God and to bring humanity back to each other. As we come to the table this morning, and you guys can come on up, Jared and Himena. It's this love that we're all aching for, and it needs to wash us. The anxiety, the envy, the fear, the concern, the ambition, the striving, the sleepless nights, the depression, the frustration. As we come to the table this morning, our Father stands ready. The Spirit is present. Jesus' work has been completed for us to rest, to be released, to be set free, to be surrendered to this incredible love. And maybe, like, if you're like me, if you're wired like me, you live in your head all the time, and there's just a zillion questions you're constantly asking. If this morning you're suffering and you have doubts, you have concerns, you're confused, you have questions, welcome to apprenticeship in Jesus. You are so welcome at the table with your challenges and your doubt. He loves you and he will answer you as he so wills. And ultimately, all our confusion and all of our doubt and all of our fear and all of our questions find their resolution at the foot of the cross and the power of the resurrection. 
That is the one sole source of always finding an answer. And so Jesus accepts us this morning through surrendered faith that responds in obedience. It's Jesus's love that defines us. It's his love that flows through us to others. And so as we come to the tables, we can ask the Holy Spirit today, fill me anew and afresh in God's amazing love. I want rivers of living water to wash over every person I see, friend and foe, near and far. And so my prayer is that neighbors and Park Hill and God willing, the churches that will be planted out of these churches that will plant more churches, that we will truly shema here, O church. Love God with all of your heart, mind, strength, soul, everything you have, and love your neighbor as yourself. The king comes. His kingdom reigns in San Diego as it is in heaven. Trust him. Father, we exalt you this morning in faith and in love. We need not fear. We have been given a spirit of love and power and a sound mind. And you will supply the answers as we seek your face that our neighbors need and that we need. And so, Father, as we come to the tables this morning, may we hold the bread and may we hold the cup with gratefulness in our hearts, holiness abounding, cleansing and acceptance. May we, you set us free from the chains of envy and comparison and jealousy and ambition and striving. And, and may we just be your children today. May we feel and sense your delight in us. And may we remember that all of our questions find their answer at the cross and through the resurrection of Jesus. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's all stand. The tables are going to go ahead and be open now. And so there's tables of grape juice and bread. I would invite you to come forward. Hold the elements of communion, the bread and the cup. And Scott will come forward here in a moment. He'll lead us in a communion meditation. And then we'll wrap up our Sunday morning together and we'll go forth into our city and we'll love God and we'll love our neighbors. Amen? Amen.